Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord for guidance in the teaching of his word this morning. Father, you have said in your word that you have given us everything related to uh, life and godliness, everything related to our physical life, everything related to our spiritual life. There is no issue, no problem, no challenge, no adversity, no difficulty, uh, no situation of perplexity that we face in life that is not addressed by your word, and it is within the framework of your word that we are informed, that we are educated, that we are given the information we need in order to make wise decisions that are consistent with your creation, consistent, therefore, with reality, and that enable us to live in such a way as to honor and glorify you. Father, one of the most challenging questions we often face, challenging issues, is when we are dealing with an authority that commands us or mandates us to do that which we would not want to do, that which is difficult to uh, fulfill, and it is difficult for us to discern where our will often ends and your will begins that we might not enforce these or apply to these situations just our own opinions and our own desires. So as we address these questions, this issue, we pray that you would give us the humility to submit to the authority of your word and that we might clearly understand the path of wisdom laid out in Scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> We're in a topical study, have been for the last two or three lessons, coming out of our study in First Kings chapter 18. In First Kings chapter 18, we are seeing the return of Elijah to the public eye. He's been in hiding for three and a half years, and as he comes out of hiding, the first person that he runs into is this man named Obadiah. Obadiah has a high position in the bureaucracy of the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, King Ahab, who is arguably one of the most evil and wicked rulers of all of history. And through the evil uh, agenda of his wife, Jezebel, they have been seeking out and destroying the prophets of God. And so Obadiah, at the risk of his own life, has taken it upon himself to hide 100 of these prophets. And he has hidden them in caves and has protected them, has brought food and water to them during this time when they are being sought by the king and the queen. And this raises for us the question, when is it right? When is it appropriate? What are the circumstances and conditions when we are, as believers, can violate the mandates of a of an authority that has been set up uh, over us. And this is something we all face at times. Uh, teenagers often face this challenge, or think they do, when they're facing uh, parents and parents' uh, commands for their life and, and uh, expectations and requirements. We face it sometimes in the workplace. We face it in the military. You face it in every sphere of life where there is an authority, And as a believer, the Scripture tells us that we are to submit ourselves to these authorities. 
But what happens when that uh, person in authority or the institution in authority is dictating to us a path, a procedure, uh, specific actions that violate God's word? What are the circumstances that we uh, <clears throat> that we must address in order to know when it is legitimate or not to disobey that that authority. Now, having raised those questions, we have to answer them. How do we go about this? I want to take a moment to talk about procedure in Bible study. One of the most important things that we can do when we address the Scriptures in study is to do what is called an inductive study of God's Word. Uh, Induction is when you go through the process of observation of all of the pertinent passages in Scripture in order to put them together and come to conclusions based upon uh, the data. Inductive study is the basic uh, principle that we have behind the scientific method. You form a hypothesis, then you evaluate uh, the evidence, you observe the evidence you cr- in the, in the uh, scientific laboratory, you perform various experiments to, to determine if indeed the original hypothesis is true or not, and then you come to conclusions. You continue to test those conclusions against the evidence until you are certain that you have come to sure and accurate conclusions that are consistent with all of the all of the data. Now, the data that we have in Scripture is a finite amount of data because it is within the Word of God. But we don't approach the Word of God deductively because deduction occurs when you form a principle or some sort of theological uh, <clears throat> theological conclusion based on logic that may or may not have been tested against the data in the Scripture. And this is easy to do. And this has too often been the case in the history of Christianity where theology is formed and then that theological system is then ram-crammed and jammed into whatever passage you find in Scripture, often at the expense of accurately interpreting those passages. So the correct procedure in Bible study is the inductive approach. And so that's what I've been doing. We started off in this study by looking at various circumstances, situations that are described in the Old Testament where someone in authority has mandated that someone uh, subordinate to them do something that is in direct violation of God's revealed will. And so we began in Exodus chapter 1 with the uh, uh, Hebrew midwives and the command of the Pharaoh to have them uh, tell, tell him when a child was born, a son was a male child was born, so that they could be uh, they could be killed. They were the Egyptians were concerned about the rapidly multiplying population of Hebrews in their in their country, and then we looked at the first chapter of Daniel, seeing the four young men, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, and Daniel, who have been brought from the southern kingdom of Judah in 605 B.C. to Babylon, the capital of the Neo-Caledonian or Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar, where they were going to be reprogrammed, re-educated, so that they could successfully serve in the government, the bureaucracy of the Babylonian Empire. Now, to date, I've got several summary points to remind you of. First of all, we saw that authority in and of itself as a principle, is not part of the created order, but it is part of the makeup of the triune God. Authority is part of the inner function of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that point, number two, at the very center of all authority, is God who is the source of authority. He doesn't create authority external to himself in order to somehow control the chaos of sin, although that is part of what its function is after the fall. God has authority, and there has been an eternal authority structure within the Godhead. So we see that authority is necessary for any social group, organization, or order to function and for it to be successful in its function. The Trinity itself, as I've pointed out in the past, is a social group. We don't normally think of it in that way because we have other ideas of what social means, 
But the, the, what social fundamentally means is a group of persons who are interacting with one another, which is exactly what you have in the Trinity. And then the fourth point was that we saw that authority was the ultimate issue in the angelic conflict so that authority becomes the ultimate issue in the believer's spiritual life. Are we going to obey God or are we going to follow the uh, follow our own sin nature or our own desires? Where lies our ultimate authority? So we have to understand that authority is fundamental. This whole problem of authority is fundamental to the spiritual life. And when we get into the scripture, we see this again and again and again, that authority is represented as the ultimate uh, ultimate issue, the final issue in most problems that are that are addressed in uh, in the scripture. So I developed two charts to try to illustrate the, illustrate this. The first one, we have uh, the triangle representing the Trinity, and on one side we have the makeup of the Trinity: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal in every aspect of their essence. They are. Uh, have the same authority over creation in terms of sovereignty. They, ha- they are equally righteous. The Father is not more or less righteous than the Son. Son is not more or less righteous than the Holy Spirit. They are equally eternal, and they are uh, equally loved. They have equal knowledge, equal power. They are each omnipresent. They share fully and equally in all of the attributes of the essence of God. But there is a distinction in their role. Sometimes theologians refer to these as the ontological trinity, that is God in his being, that's the left side, and the economic trinity, that is the trinity in terms of its role or function, that's the right side. That There's a distinction. The father is in authority over the son. The son said, I can do nothing unless the father gives it to me. And then the Father and the Son both send the Holy Spirit. So there's a distinction in role. Now, this is really important to understand because this leaks out in various ways in different human viewpoint systems. For example, in the thinking of the uh, radical feminist movement that has its roots back in the 19th century and came to sort of a neo-modern feminist movement in the 60s that we've had uh, with us for the last 40 or 50 years and has affected all of us in ways that we are not always aware of. But there's an assumption at the very core of the entire feminist movement, and that was that a role distinction was uh, meant that the person in uh, subordination was inherently unequal to the person in authority. That's the working assumption. To say that a woman must submit to her husband is to say that she's somehow less equal than her husband. She doesn't fully participate in personhood. Like the husband, the man is the one who is superior. Now, often that may have been the case in a distortion of the authority role. But if you buy into any form of the modern feminist movement, As a movement, as a philosophy, you have bought into an assumption that is inherently blasphemous, and that is the assumption that distinction in role, uh, distinction in authority, means a distinction in essence. And that is at the very core. Jesus Christ was completely subordinate to the Father, but he was identical in essence. So to say that distinction in Role means a distinction in essence is inherently uh, flawed, yet it is that core assumption that governed the entire radical feminist movement. It has changed marriage, it's changed family, it's changed the way this entire country thinks about authority relationships and leaks out in lots of different, uh, different ways. So we have to be careful of the ways in which we've been influenced by the thinking of the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age. So we see that God is the one who is in authority, and he establishes all human authority according to Scripture, which means government, parents, husbands over wives, teachers over students, employers over employees, masters over slaves, coaches over uh, athletes, officers over subordinates, church leaders over the congregation. All of these are spelled out in the Scripture. And that these are then over the individual. Now, 
What happens when we run into a problem is when that human authority somehow steps out from under the mandate of God and is dictating policies, procedures, or actions that are in conflict with God's specific direct commands. That's the key phrase. These are direct, specific commands of God, not uh, deductively developed principles, not theologized ideas, but direct, specific commands by God. So whenever the human authority contradicts God's direct, specific command, that is when we see the believers in the Scripture, Old and New Testament, being willing to step out on their own. So we have looked at various uh, situations in the past, and the one we're focusing on now is in Daniel. Now, in Daniel chapter 1, we saw that there were three challenges presented to Daniel. First of all, there was a name change, and the name was changed for each of these uh, men that were brought to Babylon in order to reflect the new pagan religion. There was a pagan curriculum that they were taught in these new training courses where they were taught about the gods and goddesses of the uh, Babylonian system so that they were to address the issues of life from within this totally pagan, uh, non-biblical, human viewpoint system of thought. And then the third area was in diet. Now, Daniel picked his battles. I made that... That's an important principle to recognize. You can't die on every hill. Now, some people think there's no hill too small to die on, but you can't die on every hill. You have to pick your battles, and Daniel did that. He chose to uh, challenge them in the arena of diet because it was in the arena of diet that God specifically gave commands, not in the area of name change, not in the area of the curriculum, because the individual's soul, the individual's spiritual life was not affected by those things if he chose not to uh, follow the pagan curriculum. But diet was important. It was specifically spelled out under the Mosaic Law. And we saw how they addressed that in wisdom and how God blessed him. Now, the next example of disobedience to authority comes in the third chapter of Daniel. And there the focus is not going to be on Daniel as it is upon his three friends. They're identified in Daniel 1.6 as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, they've been given new names. These are the names most people know them by. Daniel 1.7 shows that they were called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the last time I went through the meaning and significance of those names. Now, after Daniel chapter 1 takes place, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel and his friends are brought to a uh, the attention of the higher authorities in Babylon. As Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, a dream that we've studied in our series on Tuesday night on Revelation, a dream where he sees this huge statue that's made with precious and semi-precious metals. It's made with uh, gold and silver and bronze and, and iron and the feet of clay. And this beautiful statue represented the God's timeline uh, for history and the kingdoms that would come after uh, the Babylonian or Neo-Caledonian Empire. And so the head was of gold, the chest was of silver, the waist and hips were of, of uh uh, bronze, and then the legs of uh, iron, and then the feet or ankle area of iron and clay. Well, as Nebuchadnezzar saw that image and Daniel uh, told him what he had dreamed, interpreted the vision for him, Nebuchadnezzar in his arrogance uh, never forgot that, that identification that Daniel made, that Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And so we see in Daniel chapter 3 that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, bloated with his own arrogance, decides to construct his own image. He's been inspired by this dream, and now he's going to uh, construct this huge image that was made of gold. It wasn't solid gold. It was uh, probably uh, gold-plated. And in the construction of this uh, image out on the plain of Dura outside of the city of Babylon, they would have constructed some huge uh, kilns for uh, the melting down and uh, processing of the gold that would be put upon the statue. So that was ready and in place. 
Well, as Nebuchadnezzar looks at this, he decides when it's finished that, that he is going to command everyone in his kingdom to come and assemble out on the plain and to bow down and to worship this image which he, he had set up. And so we're told in verse 2 that he sent out word to gather all of his administrative officials in the kingdom, all of the uh, <clears throat> bureaucrats, uh, in the legislative and the judicial branches of government, all of the officials to come to Babylon, and there there would be a time when they would all gather out on the plain, must have been quite an enormous assemblage, and then at the given signal, which was when the orchestra would play, uh, they were to bow down and to worship. And so in verse 4 we read that he sends out this announcement by the uh, herald, and the herald cries aloud to you, it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery And so then the description goes on to say what took place as the orchestra played, and upon their signal, everybody who's gathered there, this could have been an enormous crowd of uh, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 people. We have no idea, but it was indeed a large crowd like this, and everybody bows down and worships the image except for three people. Now, Daniel isn't mentioned in this chapter. We don't know if Daniel was just off somewhere. We don't know where he was. But this just focuses upon the three men, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah, otherwise known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so what we also see here is that there are a group of administrators who are going to accuse them before the king. What we're going to see in several of these examples that we look at here in Daniel and also in the New Testament is that those who are in opposition to the believers that we study seem to be motivated by jealousy, perhaps vindictiveness. They are bitter about the way God has blessed these uh, particular believers, and so that's the case here. And so there is this group of uh, bitter uh, bureaucrats who are coming to Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 12, they say, There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods of worship, the gold image which you have set up. This is in uh, verse 12. And so Nebuchadnezzar responds in rage and fury. He just loses it because it reveals his arrogance. And what we see in this in this chapter is that uh, the issue in Nebuchadnezzar's life is also an issue of authority. And that's what is really, this whole doctrine of authority is really a backdrop to the first six chapters in um, in Daniel. Because the Jews have been taken out of the land now, they are uh, captive, they're in Babylon. The issue uh, specifically, individually, is authority, but God is demonstrating his authority over history. And that's the, the real message in the dreams and visions that we see in Daniel 2, later in Daniel 7, other passages. So... Definitely, see, authority is a key, a key issue in these in these events. And Daniel chapter four describes how God is finally going to break uh, Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance and teach him humility, and he is going to become finally properly oriented to the authority of God. But here in chapter three, we're seeing the build up to that, and we see his uh, arrogance. Verse 13 reads, And Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought the men before the king. And once again, we have a repetition of the king's mandate that they need to bow down and worship and the idol and be in obedience to him at the time when the orchestra plays. 
And they are warned of the consequences at the end of verse 15. If you do not worship, you'll be cast immediately into this fiery furnace. Now, most scholars believe this fiery furnace, as I said, was uh, some sort of smelter or kiln that was set up for the uh, melting of the gold for, for the statue. And there's many scholars believe that the temperature of these kilns could reach uh, 1,800 to 2,000 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And so this is, uh, documents or, or supports the, what is stated here in the text. So they would have had at hand one of these uh, kilns. It would have been open at, to- at the top and they could have walked someone out there on some sort of platform and then uh, they would have been pushed or dropped inside of this uh, fiery furnace. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not swayed by the threat of this punishment. This would be a horrendous death, probably would not last long because of the extreme heat, but they would not necessarily have known that. But we see their courage and their commitment to obedience to God in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, We don't have any need to answer you. In other words, we don't have to go through this procedure again. Don't go to the problem of assembling the orchestra and having them play. We're not going to bow down uh, to the idol. We are not going to do what uh, what you suggest at all. And if that is the case, they say, verse 17, under those circumstances, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand O king, they have great confidence that God can deliver them, but they don't know that he will. See, they have a caveat in the next verse. They say, but if not, God may not deliver us. Now, there's an interesting story behind this this phrase that uh, many of you probably don't know, and you probably enjoy the, the story. In 1940, the British... Army had its back, not literally against the wall, but against the Atlantic uh, seaboard, the English Channel. For the last year and a half, the Europe had been under the heel of the Nazi armies, and Adolf Hitler was seeking to devour all of the uh, nations in Europe to establish his uh, Third Reich, his bid to establish the uh, human form of the of the millennium. And the British, along with the French army, had already uh, surrendered. Holland, uh, Belgium had all been uh, overrun. And now the uh, British army, the only thing that stood between Britain and oppression by the tyranny of Nazi Germany, the British army stood uh, at Dunkirk with their backs to the sea uh, awaiting some sort of miracle, hopefully, that would deliver them from sure and certain defeat. At that time, King George VI addressed the nation to inspire them and to encourage them, and he said in his speech, The decisive struggle is now upon us. Let no one mis- be mistaken. It is no mere territorial conquest that our enemies are seeking. It is the overthrow, complete and final, of this empire and of everything for which it stands, and after that, the conquest of the world. It is a life and death struggle for us all. And if their will prevails, they will bring to its accomplishment all the hatred and cruelty which they have already displayed. But confidence alone is not enough. It must be armed with courage and resolution, with endurance and self-sacrifice. Keep your hearts proud and your resolve unshaken. Let us go forward to that task as one man, a smile on our lips and our heads held high. The king was calling the nation to continue to have that stiff upper lip, that resolve against the uh, what would surely be a coming invasion by the Nazis unless God intervened and a miracle delivered the army, the British army from the Germans at Dunkirk. In response to the king's speech, the British commanders sent a three-word message back to England. 
It was a message that everyone understood. It was a message that was pregnant with meaning. And the British citizen, the everyday man in the pew, because he knew the word of God, they knew what that message meant. And that message was from Daniel chapter 3. But if not. That's all it said. What was the meaning of the message? The message was, but if there is no miraculous deliverance, then what are you going to do? And it was that three-word message that galvanized the citizens and the leadership of England to get out every boat they could come up with to go across the channel and to rescue the army from the beaches of Dunkirk so that they would live to fight another day. Today, if an American general sent that message back to the United States, outside of a few preachers, we're so biblically illiterate, nobody would have a clue what the message meant or what they were supposed to do. Same is true, even more so, of England. But that shows that the thinking of the culture at that time was deeply affected by the Word of God. And they understood these theological principles of divine sovereignty and that God could intervene, but he might not. And so if God does not intervene, what are we going to do? So we see this courage among these three men. They say, but if not, if God doesn't rescue us, he doesn't have to. There's no specific promise that he will. But if he does not rescue us, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So what we see here in terms of our understanding of the Scripture, that the king is giving a specific command, and that command is to bow down and worship an idol. The Word of God specifically and directly contradicts that. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5, in the Ten Commandments, as a prelude to the Mosaic Law, the Jews were commanded, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. You see, the command from the authority directly and specifically contradicted a direct command from God in his word. And so rather than marching in the streets rather than gathering together a bunch of people to go out on some sort of protest. What these three young men did was they just made a decision that they were going to follow the Lord's command, do what the Lord commanded them to do, and that they would take whatever punishment came their way, but their trust was in the Lord. Well, you know how the rest of the story goes, that Nebuchadnezzar just went through a meltdown. He completely lost his temper. Verse 19, he says he was full of fury. His expression on his faith changed toward uh, these favored young men, and he commanded that they be put into the furnace. But first, let's stoke it up, make it really hot, increase its temperature sevenfold, which indicates it make it as hot as they possibly could. Then he chose uh, several of his greatest soldiers and heroes to bind the three men and then to throw them into the furnace. We know what happens, that uh, they were bound, trussed up in all of their clothes and turbans and everything and cast into the fire, but the fire was so hot that it killed those great and valiant warriors that the king praised as they drew close to throw those three men in. But as they threw them in, and we read in verse 22, or 23, that the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. But Nebuchadnezzar was astonished because, uh, as he observed, he must have been on some high platform so he could look down inside the furnace and see uh, what transpired. He heard his counselors, those around him, saying, well, I thought we threw three men in, but there are four. In, aren't there four in the midst of the fire? And in verse 25, the king says, look, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. 
And so it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, who appears and delivers them. This is part of the way God is working also in the life of, of Nebuchadnezzar. Now that gets into other aspects of this episode, but the point I want you to notice is that the disobedience to the authority involves a direct, specific command by the one in authority to disobey a direct, specific command of God. The response was to trust God and do what was right, but not to necessarily make a big deal about it, but to simply trust in God's deliverance, which may or may not come. And throughout much of history, it has not come for many of those who have uh, trusted in God and obeyed him rather than the orders of an evil uh, monarchy or an evil dictator, and they have chosen to serve God rather than man. We have another episode in Daniel. Just turn over two or three chapters to Daniel chapter 6. Again, this is a an episode that is uh, <clears throat> familiar to many people. It is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And again, it is also the story of a man who takes his stand in obedience to God's word rather than following the direct commands, the law of a, of a king. This takes place late in Daniel's life. Now, he is probably in his early 80s. We don't know exactly how old he was. But this takes place after the destruction of the uh, Chaldean Empire, its defeat by the uh, Medes and the Persians. And it was probably not long after that. That occurred in 538. Daniel has been in um, this area in Babylon now since 605. So at least uh, 45, 48 years have gone by. Daniel was uh, in his teenage years. Now, he is an older man by this time, and so he's 70s, maybe early 80s, as most scholars believe, and he has been elevated to a high position in the government. We read in uh, verses 1 and 2, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. This just talks about how he organizes the administration of the kingdom, and this would be at the beginning of the uh, Persian kingdom. And over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them. So he, he organizes the whole country, and at the very upper echelon there are three governors. Daniel is one of them, and he is therefore second, uh, the second tier of command in the kingdom. Verse 3, we read that Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. He had wisdom from God, and he was a mature, uh, tested leader. And so the king gave thought to setting him over the entire realm. So they're going to, he's going to promote him to be the number two man in the kingdom, and of course this generated jealousy and hostility and uh, revenge motivation by the other bureaucrats. And so they began to conspire among themselves to come up with some way in which they could destroy Daniel. And it was well known that Daniel was a man of strong spiritual convictions. Uh, people knew that he worshipped Yahweh. They had seen all of these episodes and heard about them throughout his life. And so they decided that the way to get Daniel is to get him to... Uh, <clears throat> to get him to uh, disobey a direct order from the king. And so they come up with the idea that the king should establish a decree that everyone uh, in the kingdom, uh, no matter what their position is, that no one in the kingdom could petition any god or man for 30 days. Now, there was a rationale that they would have presented uh, for this. And it was at the early stages of the Persian Empire as they're trying to organize and unify all of these different people. And so they would want to do this under the authority of the uh, king of the Persian Empire. And so they come up with this law that for 30 days, all 
everything would have to come, all petitions to any god would have to come through Darius. He then becomes, in effect, a king-priest, and he is viewed as the one through whom everyone will have access to God. So this strengthens his power and his position, and, of course, it's a violation of God's direct, uh, direct mandate. So they come up with this, this plan, and they go to the king, In verse 8 we read, Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing, so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. The point being that once it was signed into law, the king could not violate it. No one could change the law, not even uh, the king. And so he signs it into law in verse 9, and then in verse 10 we read, Now notice how the Holy Spirit has had this written. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he got all the other believers together and they had a peace march. No, it doesn't say that. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. Doesn't make a big deal about it. Doesn't change uh, his practice. He goes to his upper room. He has his windows open, which was his normal procedure, uh, toward Jerusalem so that he could pray toward the location of the, where the temple had been, the location of the temple mount. And he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. So he's not doing anything any different. He's not trying to uh, thumb his nose at the king. He's not trying to tweak the king. He's not picking an issue and then he coming up with some new procedure just to uh, violate the king's authority. He is doing that which he has always done, showing his obedience to God's word. And these men assemble. They're outside, hiding in the bushes, watching and observing. They know what Daniel's always done and how he's done it. And as soon as they see it, they go to the king, and they tell the king what has happened. And they say, see, you have, haven't you signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions? And the king said, yes, that's, that's true at the end of the verse. And then these men challenge the king that, that Daniel is the one who has violated this law. And so, king, you have to uh, punish him. You have to put him into this den of lions. Now, this was a standard form of punishment among the Persians. They had many other forms of executions. And J.M. Cook, in one of the more recent uh, studies on the Persian Empire says that some of them were, quote, almost exquisitely horrible. They loved to torture and to uh, kill, execute those who were in opposition to the government in horrendous ways. The, both the Assyrians before them and the Babylonians and the Persians were known to capture lions, to put them into cages and to keep them in uh, various uh, pits. And they would use these as forms of punishment, throw a living person in and watch them be uh, torn apart uh, by, the, by the lions. And so this was a standard procedure. And so the king, bound by law, has to put uh, Daniel into the, into the lion's den. And so the king, who is very upset with this because he uh, loves Daniel, uh, can't sleep at night. And the story goes on, and we know what happens. Next morning he gets up and goes to the den, calls out to Daniel, and <clears throat> says in verse 20, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And his, the reply is that Daniel says, O king, live forever. Notice that even in spite of this unjust law and what has happened to him, even though he has not deserved this, the whole situation has been designed to destroy him, he still shows respect for the authority. He shows respect for the position. This is one of the things we've lost in America. Um, In the military, when you salute an officer, salute someone who is superior to you, you are saluting the rank, not the person. Our respect should be for the king, not because of who the king is as a person, but because of the office of authority. Our respect should be for the office of the president, the office of a governor, office of a mayor, 
office of husband, office of father, office of parent. Our respect is for the office, even though the one who holds the office may not be worthy of that respect. This is what it means to honor the king. One last passage I want to go to this morning is in the New Testament, Acts chapter 5. This is one of the most significant events. Notice that each of these things I'm looking at are historical events where none of these passages are directly giving us uh, principles for obedience to authority. They are exemplifying for us how believers throughout history have responded to authority that has been uh, in conflict with the Word of God. The episode in Acts chapter 5 is an episode involving the proclamation of the gospel by the apostles. And the apostles uh, are arrested by the, by the Sanhedrin, starting in uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 17, and they're put in a common, uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 17, verse 18, they're put into a common prison. And then that night, an angel of the Lord, verse 19, but at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, and here's the command, verse 20, Go, stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. So they're given a specific command to go to the temple and to proclaim the gospel and proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah who came and paid the penalty for their sins, died, and was buried and rose again. So they are given a direct mission by God, and they respond in obedience, verse 21. When they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But see, the high priest hasn't heard this yet, and he thinks they're all still in prison, gathers the Sanhedrin together, and they try to decide what to do about these these apostles. And they send the uh, guard to go bring them from the prison, Verse 23, they discover that the prison is empty, the doors are opened, and they have disappeared. But then word comes in verse 25 that the men uh, that were in prison are now in the temple teaching the people. They are doing what God said to do. And so the captain of the guards is sent to uh, arrest them. They do it without violence. Notice how uh, they're, they're respectful of them because they feared the people because they were afraid they would stir up some sort of riot and be stoned. And when they bring them before the council, the high priest began to interrogate them and starts off in verse 28 by saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? So you have a specific command from God to go to the temple and to proclaim the word. You have a command from the human authority to not teach in the name of Jesus. And what did they do? How did they address the decision? Verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The issue for the believer is recognition of the proper chain of command and the proper authority, and God's direct specific commands take precedence over anyone else. We see that the issue is humility and obedience to authority as exemplified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.8, we read that Jesus Christ was found in appearance as a man, talking about uh, his humanity, true humanity and hypostatic union, and that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, it appears from the context, perhaps, that he's being obedient to God. And ultimately that is true. He's being obedient to God and God's plan of salvation. But there's something else there. Notice the text doesn't say to whom he was being obedient. It's clear from other passages of Scripture, for example, the First Peter 2 passage I read earlier this morning, that he is obedient to the authorities. He's obedient to the Roman authorities. He's obedient to the Jewish authorities as they are attempting to murder him, which is clear. They are in violation of the law. The Jewish authorities are violating the laws of the Mishnah, the laws of their own procedures, and the Romans also are executing a man they know to be innocent. But Jesus, despite the fact that he is being punished by a miscarriage of justice, 
is obedient to that to the point of death on the cross. And so what we see from our examples in Scripture is that we form a conclusion, and that conclusion is that even when the authority is wrong, we are to respect that authority, but when the authority violates, and only when the authority is directly violating God's direct command, does the believer have the prerogative of obeying God rather than man. And that, if that were not true, then... Uh, we would not have had the salvation that we have. And Jesus submitted himself to authority and went to the cross, and there he bore in his body on the cross the punishment for our sins. So they're all paid for. God used the illegitimate, tyrannical government that was operating in Judea both by the Sanhedrin and by uh, the Romans in order to effect our salvation. When we step out from under God's uh, chain of command, God's authority, then what we're basically saying is we know more than God does and we have a better handle on God's plan for our life and the future than he does. Our position of safety and security is always in obedience to God's word and when, uh, when appropriate, obedience to every authority he has set over us. And the only time it's not appropriate to honor the king and respect all authorities is when they directly, specifically violate God's word. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we are thankful that we have this opportunity to study your word, that your word is the source of light. Scripture says it's lamp into our feet and a light into our path, and it's in the light of your light that we see light. It is your word that tells us, teaches us how we are to respond to and to act in every circumstance and situation in life. Father, ultimately, when we gather as a body of believers, we're worshiping you because of all that you have given us in salvation. But there may be someone here who has never trusted Christ as Savior. They are unsure and uncertain of their eternal destiny. Right now, if you are a person like that and you've never believed that Jesus died for your sins, this is your opportunity to make your eternal destiny sure and secure by simply believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, by trusting in him and him alone, you have eternal life. This life can never be taken from you. You are immediately made a child of God. You are entered into his family. You are entered into the royal family of God, and you have an eternal destiny that can never be lost. This is your opportunity to simply believe that Jesus died for you. Father, we pray for... Uh, each of us, that we will be challenged by your word, that God the Holy Spirit would show us where we need to apply these things in every sphere of authority in which we find our, our, ourselves, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.